Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. This morning, we are going to talk about security issues and policing. It's been just over a week since the deadly shooting at the Fort Lauderdale Airport. The suspect made his first court appearance this week and could face the death penalty. Of course, the latest mass shooting in the U.S. once again puts the issue of gun control and mental health front and center. And the shooting exposed a glaring security weakness inside airports that are not subject to routine security checks, the baggage claim area, where the suspect was able to retrieve his gun from his suitcase, load it, and then open fire. Joining me this morning on the phone to talk about security issues and concerns is global security expert Dr. Alex Del Carmen. Dr. Del Carmen heads up the School of Criminology, Criminal Justice, and Strategic Studies at Tarleton State University in Fort Worth. He is also a law enforcement expert, so we'll also be talking about policing in the era of Facebook Live. Dr. Del Carmen, welcome to the program. Good morning, Anna. Thanks for having me. So in the aftermath of the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting, what sort of security measures do you think, Dr. Del Carmen, TSA is looking at to try and protect us from another shooting like this one? You know, my guess is that they're actually looking at the uh, baggage claim area and what they can do in order to prevent somebody from coming in with a gun or perhaps, as we saw in Fort Lauderdale a few, a few days ago, someone getting out of a plane and simply removing the gun out of their baggage uh, in the restroom and then coming in to, to kill people, innocent bystanders that were just simply there doing nothing except uh, traveling somewhere or perhaps arriving from, from somewhere. So, so I think what TSA is probably doing is they're, they're going back and looking and revisiting what is the most practical, the most economic, but yet the most efficient way to be able to prevent someone from engaging in this similar attack against anyone else in the United States. And besides the baggage claim area, it's also the picking up zone that is a target. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about an airport from the standpoint of security, the most vulnerable areas at that airport are from the time that you actually drive your vehicle in, uh, look for a place to park, uh, get out of your car, and walk somewhere to be able to check in through security. That's not to say that security is infallible, or that somehow security is 100% effective all the time. But what we do know, however, based on these past attacks that we've had for the past few years, all throughout the world, not just in the United States, is that the, the vulnerability lies between the parking lot, between the parking garage, and the place where individuals may actually come in and, uh, and, go, and go through that uh, security clearance. What lessons do you hope are learned from this latest tragedy? You know, first of all, we need to be vigilant, and I think that that is incredibly important for citizens to be vigilant and have situational awareness as to where they are. Um, we know, for instance, of some instances where, you know, that in itself saved some people's lives in Fort Lauderdale. In other instances, people got really lucky. They had A young man had a laptop that essentially saved his life. Uh, at the end of the day, I think what's really important is for us to be aware of our surroundings all the time, to look for an escape route, 
to, to, to really think about the unthinkable. What would, hap- what would I do if uh, something happened right now? From, on the part of government, I think what's important for, in, in terms of lessons learned is that they need to double up security. They need to increase, as we call in criminology, capable guardians, the ability of having security on all sides of the airport, both the front end and the back end of airports, and ensure that people are simply safe uh, when they show up at the airport. But there are challenges that lie, and there are challenges in terms of money, in terms of personnel, and in terms of efficiency. Well, police and federal officials can't be everywhere, and they can't read people's minds. That's exactly right, and at the end of the day, it's going to be very hard for any police department at any airport to simply have police officers in every single gate all the time, 24-7, and be able to be on the lookout. So, you know, um, it really is a matter of, 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 a tr- of a national tragedy, but at the same time, we have to sit back, just like we did after 9-11, and reinvent the wheel and figure out what, the, what those areas of vulnerability are and what we can best do to address them. I was watching CNN this past week, and Tom Fuentes, who was once the assistant director at the FBI, was talking about how it's so frustrating for law enforcement and for the general public when you have situations like what happened in Fort Lauderdale, because it is perfectly legal for someone to place a gun in their check bags, and because the laws are such when it comes to mental health, that the suspect was not deemed a threat, and so even though he had gone to the FBI in Alaska to say he was hearing voices and that the, the voices were telling him to join ISIS, that after his mental health evalu- evaluation, he was given his gun back. So it's frustrating on the gun control issue, and it's frustrating on the mental health issue. Right, and so there are several points that, that you just hit as you were talking about that. The first, first and foremost is that, you know, not only is it frustrating, but law enforcement has a very limited capacity and ability to be able to have done anything to prevent this, this guy from doing what he did. You know, uh, I've been asked by the media before, you know, did the FBI drop the ball? And my answer is absolutely not. There is nothing the FBI could have done. Individuals are protected by the Constitution of the United States against involuntary confinement. And the reality is, is that this, this person walked in at the FBI headquarters in, in Alaska and spoke to the FBI agents. And I know that, that most of them probably looked at each other and said, you know, this guy is not well. But at the same time, you would have required them to go to court, uh, require them to file the appropriate paperwork, do the mental evaluation. And perhaps, and I underscore perhaps a judge would have, would have, would have issued some sort of a restraint on this person. But FBI doesn't have the capacity and, quite frankly, the job description to be able to do that. So it's very challenging for law enforcement. As someone who heads up the School of Criminology, obviously you will take this case and you will talk to your students about it. What points do you want to make to the future law enforcement agents? So I think one of the most important things about this case is is obviously the denial that our country uh, is currently in with regards to mental illness. I think oftentimes there is such a stigma that is attached to not only those individuals that seek medical help, but those that actually receive it, that oftentimes people that are in need of mental health, uh, mental assistance, they don't seek it because of the absolute fear that they have that they're going to lose their job, that their records are going to be compromised, that they won't be able to own a gun, that they won't be able to live what the rest of us deem as a normal lifestyle. And so by virtue of that, you know, what is important, I think, for criminal justice practitioners in the future, not only, not only them, but, but also specifically law enforcement, is that we have to work with our policymakers to be able to, in many ways, normalize that mental illness 
um, you know, critical care that some people need to receive. Secondly, we also have to be able to identify when someone is suffering from mental illness and be able to make the absolute referral uh, to a mental uh, facility so that they can be helped. And I think, I think there's a big angle to this story that oftentimes we don't talk about, and that is that of our vets. Oftentimes our veterans are just simply abandoned. They, they come back from a war theater, they see horrible things, and they're left unaided in the United States, and, and, uh, and, and they're expected to perform the way they did prior to going to a theater. And I think oftentimes, you know, we forget about it. We talk the good talk. We, we have Veterans Day, and we, you know, we, we salute our veterans, uh, you know, all throughout the country. But in reality, we've abandoned them, and we've abandoned them as it, as it, as it pertains to mental care. When it comes to the suspect in the Fort Lauderdale shooting, Esteban Santiago, it seems that he did come back very, very changed after his stint in Iraq, that he lost uh, two father figures in battle, and then he, he actually kind of did the right thing in going to authorities in Alaska and asking for help and telling them what was going on, uh, but the system kind of failed him. I think so. Not only his family, but the system, the government, and all of us failed him in many ways. And I'm not calling him necessarily a victim because the culpability of him taking lives and injuring others is there. But the reality is this guy probably was, was having some sort of a delusional attack. The fact that he went to, to seek help, that he gets on a plane, and inside the airplane apparently reports came out saying that he was having all sorts of issues with flight attendants and fellow passengers. This guy was screaming for help. Yeah. He was asking for somebody to help him. And then, of course, he gets to Fort Lauderdale and he begins to attack, which is what we were hoping that, that we would evade at some point. My guest once again on the phone this morning, Dr. Alex Del Carmen. Dr. Del Carmen heads up the School of Criminology criminal justice, and strategic studies at Tarleton State University in Fort Worth. We've been talking about security issues in the wake of the deadly shooting at the Fort Lauderdale Airport over a week ago. He's also a law enforcement expert, so I want to talk about the issue of community policing. And, you know, in the aftermath of what happened on July 7th in Dallas, one thing that President Obama said at the memorial for the officers that were gunned down in downtown Dallas was he said that Dallas was actually doing everything right when it came to community policing and working with the community to kind of repair relations. As someone who works with law enforcement and who is helping to train those who will protect us in the future, how do you feel our North Texas law enforcement community is doing when it comes to working with the communities that they serve? You know, I think we're doing extremely well. I mean, I think law enforcement in Texas, period, is is really among the best, if not the best, in the United States. If you look around the country, and I have, and I've trained officers from other states as well, you really see law enforcement in Texas to be, you know, far above and beyond what others do. That's not to say that they're perfect. That's not to say that there's no room for improvement. But at the end of the day, there have been they have made some serious, serious progress in the past 10, 15 years with regards to community engagement. And I think evidence of that in Texas is what you've seen uh, in, in spite of the fact that we've had challenges around the state on excessive use of force and what appears to be from time to time uh, racism. Uh, we've made progress. We've made significant progress. What is there to learn? What is there to do? I think to engage the community directly, to have a dialogue between the chief of police and those in command staff and the community at large so that they can actually hear firsthand 
what are the primary concerns, what are the things that are really troubling the community on a daily basis that they can do something about it. I am one of those believers that dialogue is essential for community policing to work. Some of the well-known programs within the Dallas Police Department include Coffee with a Cop uh, that happens every month and also Chief on the Beat. And from what I understand, that kind of makes the police officers a member of that community that they're protecting and serving. Right. And so if you look at the history of policing in the United States, if you go back to New York, to Boston, to those police departments that really gave birth to policing in America, oftentimes you will see that community policing existed since the onset of the creation of law enforcement in the United States, when police officers were responsible for what we called a beat or a particular number of streets, they knew the barber's name, they knew the person that actually worked in the meat market, they, they knew the person that worked at the grocery store. And so by virtue of that, you know, the, the community policing concept was born at the same time that law enforcement was born in the United States. What has actually changed is the way we go about doing it. And, and you'll often see now that there are cities, like for instance, in Arlington, in Grand Prairie, in Mansfield, where where the police chiefs actually uh, tweet, uh, you know, their stories. They they engage the community directly through social media, which is a fabulous idea. I, I know in Newark, New Jersey, officers are actually told to get out of their patrol vehicles and walk the streets and talk to the neighbors and to the store owners about what's going on, how the kids are so that they understand and that the community is more open to the police officers who are there in their community. Right. So the psychological effect that that has is significant uh, in, in, in two areas. One of them is in the area of the actual community, right? So the community member feels that law enforcement is present. And by the way, that increases their level of satisfaction and feeling that they are safe and that they are going to be safe in that particular community. Secondly, I think the second effect is on the law enforcement officer because the officer then not only gathers information, intelligence, develops a report with the individual, but he or she is also able to feel that they belong to the community. So the sense of pride, the sense of, of, of being a stakeholder, being part of the community emerges as well. So it's a beautiful thing in the sense that both the community and the law enforcement officer have much to gain from that exchange. How important is it for police to also go into those area schools as they do so often to talk to kids? It is very important. You know, oftentimes we find that in the school systems, the one time that a police officer comes in and talks to them is the one time that they will actually hear something positive, not only about a police officer, but from a police officer as well. And so, so in communities that are marginalized, where the there's a great deal of negativism and perhaps even suspicion towards a law enforcement officer. When that police officer shows up to the school and begins to engage in a positive dialogue, it almost takes away that, that, that stigma that many people have that law enforcement is out there and is versus them versus us type of mindset. Dr. Del Carmen, this past week it was announced that Fort Worth Police Officer William A. Martin, the officer involved in that viral video where he's seen wrestling an African-American woman and her daughter to the ground after an altercation with them when they had actually called police for help. He was suspended for 10 days without pay. Fort Worth Police Chief Joel Fitzgerald said Martin violated policy. Sorry for his behavior. He said that Martin will be required to undergo additional training and then go back into that community where the incident happened to repair relationships. Uh, 
Facebook Live caught this whole altercation, and it was broadcast around the world, not just here in North Texas, but across the country and around the world. The video went viral. What can you say about policing in the age of Facebook Live? You know, it is a different type of policing. And when I train police officers around the country, and particularly in Texas, I often remind them that any time they engage anyone, either from their vehicle or outside of their vehicle, they need to assume that they're being recorded and that that, that, and that, that particular recording is being transmitted live somewhere. Because at the end of the day, Texas, we in Texas are a one-party consent state, which essentially allows for any citizen to record any type of public uh, engagement between a police officer and an individual. So by virtue of that, legally, the person uh, is allowed to, to record it. And, and, and in terms of customs and practices, they will post it on Facebook. They will post it on social media. And it will be for the world to see, as you indicated earlier. So the, the mindset of police officers, particularly those that are veterans, that are not used to having uh, social media as being part of their lives, needs to change and has changed to some degree in accepting that this is, this is part of that new normal. Hindsight, of course, is 2020. But when you look at that video, and I'm sure you're probably going to be showing it in class uh, to your students and saying, okay, where did he go wrong? What should he have done? What will you tell those students? You know, oftentimes what, what we see in a video is not what actually happens, you know, in the totality of circumstances. Exactly. I often say that a video shows only a segment and perhaps the segment that sells newspapers and allows for people to, you know, pick a story apart. I don't have really opinions based on a very short, you know, uh, video that, that only shows uh, a particular side of the story. But I will tell you that what is important here and what I tell my students is context. Context is important because just like context can, can exculpate uh, a police officer that may be wrongfully accused of something that they, that they seem to have done wrong, it can also fortify the case and strengthen the case that a police officer should, shouldn't be in that particular role. And so, so I think context and the length of the video, the investigation, there are things that the Fort Worth Police Department has reviewed regarding this case that the rest of us ignore. And so oftentimes when we jump the gun and we have an emotional reaction to something, it really lends us to pause and reflect and perhaps have confidence in the fact that, that there is a thorough review process that has taken place already. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's, it, 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 there are many stories and there are many lessons to be learned uh, from all different sides, but I think primarily what's important here is to put it in context and to stick to the facts. My guest once again on the phone this morning, Dr. Alex Del Carmen. Dr. Del Carmen heads up the School of Criminology, Criminal Justice, and Strategic Studies at Tarleton State University in Fort Worth. We've been talking about security issues in the wake, of course, of the deadly shooting at the Fort Lauderdale Airport, but we've also been talking about law enforcement issues, the issue of policing in an age of Facebook Live, also uh, relations between police departments and the communities that they serve. One thing I know, uh, Dr. Del Carmen, that you are an expert on and you consult law enforcement departments here in North Texas but across the country on is racial profiling. And that, of course, has been front and center for the past couple of years uh, due to the Black Lives Matter. What do you want people to know about the reality of racial profiling and its uses for police departments? You know, oftentimes when it comes to racial profiling, 
people assume that all cops do it and that it is pervasive across the country. And what I often say is that 99.9% of law enforcement are decent, honest, hardworking people that get up in the morning to change and do uh, something better for our society every day. Unfortunately, it does happen. And unfortunately, there are instances where individuals that should have never been police officers engage in that practice. And I think the challenge for all of us is to make sure we identify those individuals and we root them out uh, from the law enforcement communities where they are because they have no business uh, being police officers and they make, they make the rest of the law enforcement community look bad. And so I think that, you know, oftentimes we jump the gun and we have emotional reactions to things, but I think it's, it's important to reflect and to once again uh, understand it and try to understand it from a perspective of science, from a perspective of practice, and once again stick into the facts. What do your students ask you about the issue of racial profiling and how it works and when it can be utilized? You know, oftentimes the, the discussions that we have in the classroom and outside of the classroom relate to how do we know that it exists, how do we know that it's there, how do we measure it, and oftentimes what I'm asked by law enforcement is how can we prevent it. And on the first point, I think oftentimes we often say that statistics are the ones that have to absolutely unequivocally show that racial profiling exists. And, and I often say statistics help, but you also have to look at other things like the number of complaints, the nature of the complaint, the video camera, various other things that will really show whether or not a police officer is engaging in profiling or not. And, and when it comes to prevention, I think training is absolutely crucial. I think doing audits on the police departments and making sure that their data corresponds to the demographics, that their data corresponds to their practices is absolutely crucial. And I can tell you, I'm most impressed that a lot of police chiefs, they, they, either, they either talk to us about it or they're open about it in forums, but they, their mindset is we want to identify it, and if it's there, let me know, Dr. Del Carmen, where it is, and I'm going to root it out of my police department and uh, take, do what I need to do in order to make sure this is not a common practice. And so I think we're in good hands, but I think the challenge is still there, that we do have police officers, albeit some, not, not many, uh, that engage in this practice, and we have to root them out. Unfortunately, it seems that the police officers that are becoming viral video sensations or who are making headlines are the bad cops. And uh, it, it, we don't oftentimes hear about those cops that are going out after uh, a woman is attacked or her home catches fire and they go out and buy Christmas gifts for the whole family to take care of them. Or the police officer who steps out of his patrol car to play basketball with a bunch of kids in the neighborhood. Right. And I think what, you know, the reason for that is because bad stories uh, sell newspapers and good stories uh, don't. And so at the end of the day, the media tends to focus on things that are bad, that are messy, that are scandalous, and, and they want to get reactions from the public. And people get then at that point tune in or they watch the television or they buy the newspaper because the bad story will sell. But, but who covers the, the police officer that actually shows up to a crime scene and, and holds a baby in his arms and takes that baby away from a mother that's about to stab the baby? Who talks about the police officer that responds to a, a triple homicide and has to then go home and hug his kids? I mean, it's, it's a very difficult job, and we, we really, frankly, don't understand it. We, the public has no idea what police officers do, 
And most of what of their impression or their education comes through the media or comes through from Hollywood where they absolutely glamorize the job and they, and they exaggerate what they do. And at the very least, they never show the paperwork that they have to work with. Are you finding more students are interested in going into criminal justice and into serving the public as police officers or FBI agents or ATF agents? Or do you find that because of social media and because of what's been garnering attention over the past couple of years with law enforcement being kind of like portrayed as the enemy rather than as those who serve, do you find people are, are losing interest and are backing off? You know, in criminal justice programs across the country, particularly our program, it has been growing uh, quite a bit for the past years. And we have seen zero correlation between the, the shootings and the, and the issues that law enforcement is having across the country with enrollment, primarily because even, even if we were to see that they are not interested in local law enforcement, many of our students go on and become federal agents. Many of our students go on and, and engage in other parts of the criminal justice system like probation, like parole, or perhaps even go to law school. And so at the end of the day, we haven't seen that dip or that apparent prediction that some people had that our enrollment was going to go down across the country based on, on, the, on the feelings towards law enforcement. But what we have seen, however, is that people are coming in uh, to study criminal justice and to study law enforcement issues with a very different mindset that they did five years ago. I think there's a more realistic approach that they have, understanding that this is a job that is least desired by most people. And training is changing in the wake of social media. Would you not agree? Absolutely. Not only the way, not only what we train, but the way we do the training as well. And in many ways, you know, you have, uh, for instance, now you have millennials that are joining the ranks of law enforcement that communicate in a different way than non-millennials did 20, 30 years ago. And so by virtue of that, you know, we have to change the training techniques, how we train them, how we communicate with them, how they retain information, but also the subject matter as well, the issue of diversity, the issue of who they deal with, the complexities of a domestic violence that may not necessarily be between a man and a woman now. Uh, and you may have the LGBT community coming in to raise awareness uh, about their existence and the issues that affect LGBT communities at large. You may have the Latino community coming in to bring up issues as well that are important to, to us, uh, the, the, the African-American community. So, so at the end of the day, uh, law enforcement's uh, mission and job has, has radically changed, and so has the training. And I guess you could say that social media has also been a blessing to law enforcement because there's so many stupid criminals out there who are posting their crimes online. That's right. There's so many, so many criminals that in the, the criminals have always liked to brag for the most part about what they do. But in the old days, they would brag about it to a neighbor. Uh, nowadays, what they do is they put it on social media and they want to show everybody in the world what they're doing. And of course, as people watch that, we've got very, very sophisticated computers and cyber experts that work in the law enforcement field that are able to track down IP addresses and get a geo identification of where the individual is and therefore apprehend the person as well. So the social media has been a blessing, uh, nevertheless, to investigators. And I cannot tell you the number of crimes that have been solved 
victims that have been saved as a result of social media. Once again, on the phone, Dr. Alex Del Carmen. He heads up the School of Criminology, Criminal Justice, and Strategic Studies at Tarleton State University in Fort Worth. What message would you have for a young person who's still in high school, class of 2017, if they are considering going into law enforcement in the future? I would say uh, make sure you get good grades. Make sure you get a well-rounded education. Make sure that you try to understand the psychology of people and that you're interested in majors like criminal justice, psychology, or sociology. Make sure that you understand that you are about to embark in what is perhaps the most rewarding job in the world, but at the same time, the most challenging job in the world as well. And that people that actually do this are in fact the true heroes of our United States. These, this is, as I've called them, I was, doing a, I was actually at a training a few days ago and I, and I told the officers as a parting comment that they are the embodiment of the Constitution of the United States. And that's what I would tell any young person coming into the ranks of law enforcement today. Dr. Del Carmen, thank you so much. Is there a website that someone can go to if they want more information about Tarleton State University in Fort Worth or about you? You bet. You can go to www.tarleton.edu and then uh, search under criminal justice and you will find not only my contact information, but it will tell you all about our great program that we have at Tarleton State. And thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Dr. Del Carmen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.